Welcome to Talking in Vain, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. I'm Dawn Berent, the Clinical Education and Publications Manager for the INS. My guest today is John Boyle, the President and CEO of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. Welcome, John. Thank you for being my guest today. Well, thanks for having me here, Dawn. I uh, really do appreciate it. So, John, I'm going to start out by having you tell us about yourself and the work that you do. Sure. Well, um, as uh, you've mentioned before, I'm the uh, president and the CEO of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. Uh, you know, I lead a, a team of, uh, of over 30 staff, and then we are supplemented by uh, hundreds upon hundreds of volunteers um, as we seek, uh, as a patient advocacy organization, to really serve uh, the members of the primary immunodeficiency community, those uh, who are diagnosed with a form of PI uh, or the family members who are caring uh, with a, um, a family member who has a form of PI. So it's, uh, it's a very busy job, but a very rewarding job, and uh, one that, uh, if you will, I was born into because I am a, a member of the community as well. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, and I want to dig right in. I want you to, first of all, introduce us to what we don't understand about primary immunodeficiency diseases. Tell us a little bit more about the diseases themselves and approximately how many there are and other statistics that you're aware of. Sure. Well, um, uh, happily, I have a few statistics at my uh, hands. I can always uh, do a deeper dive if anyone really wants to get into the research at another point. Um, there are, uh, as of the moment, over 350 wow. different forms of PI that have been described. Uh, when I was uh, first diagnosed back in 1978, uh, you know, you could and count them on your uh, fingers and toes probably. It was probably in the 10 to 20 range. Uh, but now, because of the cracking of the human genome, uh, we have more and more specific genetically linked forms of primary immunodeficiencies. Now, if you look at the phenotypes, uh, there are, are, of course, far fewer. Uh, but the specificity uh, of it, uh, in addition to what we know of the prevalence, uh, which is in the United States, about 250,000 people, or about 1 in 1,200 people, having one of these 350 forms of PI means that you know, each of the diagnoses is pretty rare in and of themselves, but if you take them together, there are a lot of people who are affected by forms of PI. So mm. uh, it's something for, for people to always be aware of and uh, looking out for because it's maybe more common than people would uh, have initially thought. Oh, wow. Yes. So tell us, how are people's lives impacted when they have PI? Well, the lives of someone uh, with PI, uh, you know, is really determined by uh, when it is that they got their diagnosis. Uh, you know, I was diagnosed when I was six months old, so, uh, you know, I was caught very early uh, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and so I was immediately able to be put on immunoglobulin therapy, antibody replacement therapy. Meanwhile, there are many, many more people uh, who are diagnosed much, much later in life. Uh, you know, in aggregate, if you take all of the different forms of PI, uh, it takes about 20 years on average to get diagnosed from really symptom onset to that point of diagnosis. So you may have someone who was more or less sick as a baby, as I was, and then, you know, it's 
5, 10, 20 years later, or you may have someone who is, again, sick as a child, is a little bit lower level in terms of uh, the severity, but they kind of limp through life. Uh, mm. And, you know, it's only in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And we get people in their 80s who are just being diagnosed after a lifetime of, frankly, suffering. So mm. um, if you are diagnosed and you get on uh, the appropriate therapy, which for many of us who have an antibody deficiency may be um, uh, immunoglobulin replacement therapy, either IVIG or subcutaneous IG, um, then it basically gives us back um, much of what it is that we're missing, and we do much, much better. Mm -hmm. But if we had gone years or decades of frequent infections, there can be complications. There could be damage to uh, your organs, uh, your lungs especially, uh, and a whole lot of other issues. So uh, really the, the, the prognosis uh, depends in part upon the diagnosis, uh, but also you know, upon the time that you were diagnosed and whether uh, you know, a therapy was available to you. So uh, happy to go into more specifics on, yes. on any of those as you need. Sure. So you mentioned suffering. So let's mm -hmm. talk about what types of suffering people experience if they are undiagnosed. You know, if they're undiagnosed, uh, you know, the issue is with a primary immune deficiency disease is that a part of their immune system is either not present or not functioning properly. Uh, I, for example, uh, have a condition called X-linked agammaglobulinemia, which means that I don't produce mature B cells, which means in turn, I don't produce antibodies. Um, more members of our community have something that's a little... Uh, let's say fuzzier uh, in terms of uh, the the diagnosis. Uh, you know, they probably have some B cells or some antibodies, uh, but maybe not a kind of a full range of them. And so they are susceptible to infection. They don't have the antibodies mm -hmm. that they need to fight off infection. And as a result, they get recurrent infections over and over and over again. Um, and they don't have the protection that's needed to fight it off the way that you, Dawn, might, assuming you don't have a form of PI, I don't know that you do. <laughs> You're correct. Uh, or that, uh, hey, if you were part of our part of the herd, that would be lovely. Um, you know, as, or or the average person. So, um, you know, again, this issue of not having having those natural uh, uh, parts of your immune system that your body, you know, really is supposed to have of antibodies and the complement and natural killer cells, T cells phagocytes, uh, if any one of those is missing, then that's going to be a problem. Uh, and again, there are replacement therapies once diagnosed for many of those conditions, not all though, um, which can really change the game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you to name some of the more common immunodeficiency diseases so that our listeners who are pretty, you know, who are, have no awareness or very little awareness so that they can attach some, some terms here. Sure. Well, uh, one that is not the most common, but it's probably the best known uh, is severe combined immune deficiency or SCID. Uh, many of your listeners uh, may remember from uh, 1970s and uh, 1980s, uh, David Vetter, who was affectionately known by some as the boy in the plastic bubble. Mm -hmm. um, he was a member of our community um, and 
you know, uh, lived uh, with Skid in, in a very unusual, uh, never-to-be-repeated sort of move, uh, lived his life in these sort of isolated uh, chambers to protect him from infection, because these are the days before what is now a standard therapy for Skid, bone marrow transplantation, um, you know, was undergone. And uh, so many people... When they hear about immune deficiency or primary immune deficiency, especially, um, as opposed to secondary immune deficiencies like HIV or um, uh, issues you know, caused by uh, oncology and, and chemotherapy, um, you know, people tend to think of skid. They tend to think of, you know, David. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there are certainly a number of people uh, in the U.S., especially who have skid, but more have antibody deficiencies. Uh, So again, David had uh, skid, which meant that he was missing both his B cells and his T cells. Uh, More people basically have a more basic antibody deficiency. Uh, You'll hear uh, the the diagnosis common variable immune deficiency or CVID. That's one of the the ones that uh, many uh, patients in our community uh, are diagnosed with, uh, you know, along the way. Uh, you know, there are others uh, that are kind of cousins to skid, if you will, also antibody deficiencies like hypogammaglobulinemia. Uh, and then there are uh, specific antibody deficiencies, subclass deficiencies. Um, but again, most of these are some form of antibody deficiencies. Now, there are um, uh, diagnoses uh, of other parts of the immune system, complement deficiencies, uh, there's chronic granulomas disease, which uh, connects uh, to the phagocytes uh, that are in your system. Um, but CVID, hypogammaglobulinemia, uh, to a lesser degree, XLA, which is what I have, mm-hmm. SCID, uh, and some of the others, those are the ones that you're probably going to hear the most about, uh, you know, in, in your practice, uh, you know, year by year. Okay. So let's move on and let's talk about treatment for anything that you've listed and the many that you couldn't list. um, Tell us what regular treatment looks like. Well, if you have an antibody deficiency uh, and specifically uh, your um, immunoglobulin G, IgG, uh, is low enough uh, that it would require replacement, uh, then there is as has been mentioned before, uh, a therapy available, uh, you know, immunoglobulin replacement therapy. And there's really two different um, uh, modes of administration, either intravenous, uh, very straightforward, into the vein, uh, or subcutaneous, where it uh, is basically inserted under the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, intravenous tends to be done every three to four weeks, and then uh, the subcutaneous uh, version uh, typically is done in a lot of cases, uh, you know, uh, one every one to two weeks. Uh, and then there's a facilitated uh, subcutaneous uh, uh, version, which uh, is administered uh, once every three or four weeks. And so really, uh, for those who require uh, IgG replacement therapy, this um, this therapy is a game changer. Uh, you know, it is either life-saving, uh, as it was in my case, uh, or life-changing for someone who has maybe a more uh, mild or moderate uh, you know, form of an antibody deficiency, 
but who had been dealing with these recurrent infections. And then once they get the antibodies that they need, which are, again, pooled from humans uh, and are not um, uh, grown in a lab or anything Mm -hmm. like that, um, once they get that replacement, they then have the protection that they need, more or less, uh, to go about things the way that they would want to. It really gives them the sort of quality of life um, that they, in general, want or need. Excellent. So tell us what it's like to go to the infusion center or to be at home or wherever an infusion is received. Tell us what uh, happens. Well, <laughs> I, 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 uh, with 40 years under my belt of doing this, I can tell you uh, what a few of the, the different variations are. Um, in the dark ages, uh, you know, we only had intermuscular uh, immunoglobulin. Mm. Those were um, pretty horrific um, uh, injections. And again, uh, bioavailability was not great, and they are based on uh, really body mass. And so the bigger you get, the more of those uh, sticks that you have to get, and it's not as effective as it could be. Um, IMIG has essentially been phased out uh, for primary immunodeficiency and, and most other related therapies here. Uh, you know, with IV therapy, uh, you know, you've got a couple of different options. You know, you might get it in kind of an outpatient hospital setting, um, you know, where there's an infusion clinic and, um, you know, you and, and 12 of your closest infusion buddies are <laughs> sitting there for, uh, you know, one to six hours really yeah, kind of depends on, on, on how much uh, you, uh, how fast you can take it and, and what volume uh, is needed for you. Um, you know, but those of us with uh, uh, with antibody deficiencies who are susceptible to infection, uh, in a lot of cases, you know, we or our care team will, you know, maybe try to keep us at least out of uh, the hospital proper and maybe keep us away from other potentially sick patients. Uh, and so one of the other uh, options that's uh, been around for a couple of decades now uh, is uh, home-based uh, infusion uh, therapy of IVIG, where a nurse will come to the home um, and, you know, set you up and uh, do do everything that you would get in the infusion clinic, uh, except, uh, you know, you're uh, sitting on your own couch watching Netflix, uh, you know, as opposed to uh, watching something communally with some other people. Uh, so, again, you know, be it you do it in a uh, an outpatient clinic or a doctor's office or a doctor's infusion center, uh, you know, or at home, uh, all are really... Acceptable. It kind of is just a matter of personal preference, um, logistics, and maybe to a certain extent, uh, you know, what your insurance will cover. Mm-hmm. Um, subcutaneous, on the other hand, is done almost exclusively um, at home. Uh, there are, I know of a couple of people who, for one reason or another, might do a subcutaneous under kind of a day, um, observed status, you know, by a medical professional. Um, but by and large, you know, those materials are shipped to you uh, once you've had proper training, and then you go and you administer them yourself, um, and, you know, off you go. Um, you know, I did IV for about 30-plus years, um, and that was great, uh, but, you know, some uh, circumstances in, in my life in terms of need to travel and scheduling, uh, and also my blood pressure was going up a little bit, um, you know, it meant that subcutaneous for me, uh, you know, was something to try. And, um, you know, for a couple of years, I've been on uh, uh, sub-Q and it's worked out well. And so, 
every Saturday. I you know sit down and uh, you know two needles uh, you know in my leg. Ten grams later, uh, about forty plus minutes, uh, you know I'm done for the week, and it's um, you know in a lot of ways equivalent to the sort of time that I had to put in with IVIG, uh, but it's just a little bit different and happens to work um, a little bit differently for where I am at the moment mm-hmm. um, in life. So mm-hmm. both are efficacious. Both are great. I've tried both. Um, and it really ends up just being a matter of what works best for you. Uh, but, you know, in terms of those 40 minutes it takes to get in uh, my sub Q or the two hours or so it took uh, to get my uh, 30 grams of IV, you know, everyone reacts a bit differently. Mm -hmm. Everyone can take it at a different speed. Um, I happen to take it quite quite easily and quickly. So not everyone is going to do that, um, but, you know, it really is a little bit customized based on um, who you are, how you react to that particular uh, brand of IG because each of them is different mm-hmm. from one another. There there are no generics uh, within the IG world. Uh, so there's a lot of different variables and then variables for optimizing the care. But we can get into that uh, more more later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like um, there are several options uh, for receiving the infusions. Um, I'm going to ask now, and I'm, I'm just going to have a frank conversation with you, um, what are the most challenging aspects? And it, and it could have to do with, you know, getting in the car and fighting traffic and, you know, getting into a center and all that that involves. Or is it, you know, maintaining product at home? What challenges most of the community that you um, meet with and discuss the problems? What, and I'm, where I'm going with this is, what more can clinicians do to help? Um, that's a great question, and I am delighted that you're asking. Um, I think that the one of the keys is um, that you know, we recognize that primary immunodeficiencies are somewhat rare. Uh, you know, that m- most clinicians are not wildly familiar with how to treat someone, for example, with CVID. Uh, and, you know, they know about immunoglobulin, but they don't have a ton of experience. And so, uh, you know, what is, forgive me, uh, I think the standard is, you know, essentially reading the label, reading the directions, going according to, uh, you know, to the information that is, um, you know, available by the manufacturers uh, and everything else. And while you should start there and you should uh, uh, definitely follow those, uh, you know, in terms of good medicine, um, you've got to go beyond that. Uh, optimizing the care is really uh, the name of the game, I would say, uh, you know, because that immunoglobulin, it does not, uh, you know, it's a thick, viscous liquid, uh, you know, does not really operate the way that uh, some other uh, liquids uh, that are are put in intravenously or subcutaneously uh, go. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you try to force it in too quickly, uh, the patients are likely to have a reaction. Uh, You know, the next day they have what we tend to call an uh, IVIG hangover. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a lot of tips and tricks along the way that if a clinician and a care team or the patient themselves knows about in terms of 
proper hydration uh, pre or post meds if uh, that is is needed for them uh, to prevent headaches, uh, you know, with a, a systemic uh, issue that you might get with IVIG, um, you know, th- those issues of how to optimize the infusion process um, are critical because, you know, if the cure is worse than the disease, <laughs> at least in their minds, um, you know, keeping them on therapy, m- making it not be traumatic um, is critical. And I would argue uh, that with all the folks that, you know, we connect with at IDF who say, you know, well, my, my infusion experience is miserable. Generally, we find out something about their infusion experience that could and should be tweaked uh, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, in a more optimal circumstance, their care team would know about that it was going in too fast or that they weren't um, uh, hydrating enough, especially with IVIG. And with IVIG, there are more system-wide reactions that you may get. Um, Subcutaneous uh, has uh, almost none of those, but you know, you can have uh, site reactions and it can be mm-hmm. uh, painful going in if you, for example, don't have the right needle length. And I can tell you the majority of people who have uh, uh, come come to us saying the subcutaneous thing, it's not working for me. Um, we find that someone gave them kind of a generic needle length without really taking into mm. account their body mass. And that means it's either going into the dermis or it's going into the muscle and mm-hmm. they're not hitting it at the sweet spot. So if you adjust that and if clinicians experiment and learn and check in with their patients saying, how is this? Give me feedback. And they, they are getting honest feedback. Uh, then they can basically learn and tweak and play around with some of these elements the problem is, is that in a lot of cases, we hear from patients where they said, well, my doctor did this. They told me to do that. This is how they do it. And it's miserable. Um, and they don't realize that the standard of care is actually different, that the that the experiences, um, you know, that a well-oiled machine, um, you know, in terms of the care and the administration of it, uh, actually looks rather different mm-hmm. than what they do. So... I think that just having, um, you know, your listeners, clinicians out there, understanding how every every patient is going to be a little bit different and they're going to react to this differently. You have to keep in mind needle length. You have to keep in mind all of these different reactions they might have. And you have to look to see if all those other variables have been dealt with and the patient is still having issues, might they be having a reaction uh, against the particular product that they're on. And if so, there are always other uh, products that are formulated a little bit differently that they may react better to. So there's a lot of different variables and a lot of different ways, theoretically, of making uh, an infusion better. Now, of course, there are other things like the travel issues and you know, and the other logistics. I mean, I had to leave school early back in the old IVIG days, you know, a little bit early, once every three weeks, you know, to go to the infusion clinic uh, in the days before home health care. Um, and so, you know, that was a bit of a burden on me and, and on my family. Um, and so you are going to receive a lot of other uh, challenges that are out there. But in general, you know, if the 
patient and the physician are both in discussion uh, and the entire care team you know, about what the different options are, what might work best for your quality of life, um, and then test it and then mm-hmm. play with it a little bit to get it the best that you can be, um, it really can be, uh, again, a game changer for a lot of people who are on the therapy. Very good. So customizing and tailoring that administration to the patient's needs, the t- patient's response, reaction, is is well within the scope of infusion nursing. Um, we always have our policy, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and you know sometimes even organizational policy will say, you know, it's an it's an exact rate, you know, or whatever it is. But you know, having yep. those discussions and having honest, open discussions about what works best and and what doesn't sounds like um, this is an ongoing thing, and and it really takes work on both parts parties to uh, collaborate and have the best outcome when modifying. I would agree. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Very good. So let's talk about that product then. Now, um, I know that there is, there's so much on the horizon about products and, and new products, but the first thing I'd like to talk about is something that um, clinicians and patients alike are really challenged with sometimes lately, and that is shortages. So, John, have you noticed shortages with products for patients in your community? Oh, unfortunately, we uh, we definitely have. Um, now, at some level, this is nothing new. Back in the uh, the late nineties, uh, especially nineteen ninety seven, I believe. Uh, you know, the entire field uh, ex- experienced a very, very uh, severe shortage, uh, you know, that was kind of contributed, to, uh, uh, you know, by some external forces, if you will. Uh, but for really this last year and for, um, you know, unfortunately, probably a good long uh, while to come, uh, our community, just like everyone else who is using immunoglobulin, uh, you know, are finding themselves in new territory because, uh, you know, as best as we can see, uh, you know, the issue right now is that there are uh, more people who are being uh, prescribed immunoglobulin, uh, either due to, you know, on-label usage or, of course, there is off-label usage, um, you know, then the current supply is uh, is able to, uh, to really deal with. Now, this is not, and, and we hear every day by people who are, are hearing you know, things that are, if you will, uh, a bit blown out of proportion uh, in terms of the severity of, you know, uh, of the situation, the shortage or the market tightness uh, that's out there. Again, the supply and demand curves are, are almost linked, it seems. Uh, there is just about enough uh, to meet everyone's needs. But again, there are multiple products out there. There's IV uh, and then there's subcutaneous. And so, you know, if you um, are served, uh, you know, by a home health care company and you typically receive, you know, X number of vials of product Y, which you get once every three weeks, uh, you know, as IV, uh, it, they may all of a sudden say, hey, we're having trouble getting that product. And so, you know, either we'd like to switch you to another product or you know, we know that we don't happen to have access to that product, but we know there are other places that might. Uh, and so, you know, really the immunoglobulin at the moment is out there. And what we do here is, let's say, 
one specialty pharmacy has a lot of product A, but then this other specialty pharmacy doesn't have any of product A, but it has a lot of product B. Meanwhile, the first specialty pharmacy doesn't. It's just a matter of who has what when. Uh, once upon a time, not too long ago, there was enough, if you will, slack in the market that you know those who uh, ordered and contracted, uh, you know, to receive X amounts um, of, of immunoglobulin, either subcutaneous or, or intravenous, um, based on what you know they thought their patients would need. You know, they could make things work. They could, you know get a few more grams here or there. Uh, now the demand is so high and the demand is global that that is hard, that you know everyone is dealing with very thin margins of how much, uh, really how many grams they have to work with. And people, specialty pharmacies especially, I would say, and I think more and more hospitals, um, are now having to look so very carefully at the grams that they have available and, you know, before accepting a new patient on mm, therapy, yeah. they've got to make sure that they have what is needed uh, to, uh, to supply them and not to accept that new patient and then all of a sudden find that they don't have enough product to help out this other patient mm -hmm. who was on therapy and has been for maybe decades. So that's kind of the situation that we're in right now. Um, and I think there's a lot of room to be hopeful that it's not going to get too, too much worse, um, you know, but because really all the companies are trying to ramp up production, collect more plasma, uh, fractionate that plasma, turn it into uh, to different therapies. But the trick is, is that there's so many uh, A, on-label uses for immunoglobulin, and B, so many off-label uses for immunoglobulin, that it is in demand. And uh, those of us with primary immunodeficiency are using it for antibody replacement, um, you know, which is somewhat unique, and mm -hmm. that many of the others are using it for kind of an immune modulation. So it's, it's a tricky time, and it's really, really scary if all of a sudden you're told, you know, this product is not available, and maybe you don't get a lot more information then and there. So uh, that's one of the areas where uh, IDF then kind of comes into play. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go there. Let's let's talk about the Immune Deficiency Foundation. I'm going to have you tell about the foundation, and you can uh, kind of cross over then and talk about your work in um, working at a national level to address the shortages in products for your patients. So IDF was founded in 1980 uh, by a group of uh, volunteers, uh, patients, parents, and uh, clinicians really saw that uh, there was no information that was uh, patient-friendly, family-friendly, uh, you know, about immune deficiencies at that point. Really, all the information uh, back in 1980 was found in kind of big, thick medical textbooks. It was not very easy to understand, um, you know, and there just was not a lot of information. So IDF really started as an organization that was uh, providing patient-focused information, helping people to understand their diagnosis, uh, and I would argue helping them to get oriented to what that diagnosis meant because it was not well understood at the time. Uh, and again, we still have a long ways to go in terms of uh, you know, people's recognition of PI and how to treat it. Um, but you know, back in the early 1980s, it was a 
particular challenge. These are the days before the Internet. Um, but today, uh, you know, we have a, uh, uh, a professional staff. As I mentioned before, we have many, many uh, uh, hundreds of volunteers who are helping us to extend our reach uh, because we are, at our heart, a patient advocacy organization. We uh, certainly interact with and try to uh, to educate medical professionals uh, to the best degree that we can, uh, which is why I'm, I'm delighted to be on the podcast here today. Uh, but our real focus and our real area of expertise is in helping the patients and the families uh, along their journey. Uh, this is an area that is still uh, you know, not well known, uh, and even for those who get diagnosed, as we've talked about with these therapy issues, in a lot of cases, they're not receiving uh, the standard of care. Their quality of life could be different if they knew the tips and the tricks, if they were in contact with other uh, patients and families who have been where they were maybe a few years ago. Um, and it's also an opportunity to learn from some of the best and brightest in the field. Uh, you know, you may be diagnosed uh, and treated by a, a clinician, and you may be in a, a reasonably uh, rural area, for example, uh, you know, without um, a lot of immunology uh, specialty knowledge that's available to you. But if you come to one of uh, you know, our programs, as well as others that are out there, you have an opportunity to hear things from a different side, to get a second opinion, if you will, uh, as to what the expectations for treatment for lifestyle really could and should be. Um, and so, again, you know, that legacy of educating uh, patients and families, uh, orienting them to, you know, what is their new normal after they get diagnosed, uh, and then helping them along the way understand uh, issues like these, um, these treatment uh, tweaks and optimizations that can be done uh, are a big part of what we do. And then also giving people a sense of community, that they're not the only one out there. Uh, because, you know, many people, most people who have a diagnosis of a primary immunodeficiency have never heard of it before. And so there is something to be said for the, the power of community and uh, that sort of understanding uh, and commiseration um, when you are together. Now, in addition to all that, IDF gets involved in um, legislative issues uh, on the, uh, the federal level and the state levels, as well as insurance issues, where through no fault necessarily of anyone's own, uh, the PI community is not being well represented. Sometimes that is a, uh, an issue uh, with uh, Medicare or Medicaid and some of the policies uh, that are enacted that are meant to provide care to a population that's maybe a little bit different than ours. And uh, we have to kind of raise our hands and stand up and mm -hmm. uh, do uh, uh, demonstrations and, and go and, and lobby, uh, you know, to make sure that people understand that, uh, you know, with unintended, uh, you know, consequences here, uh, you know, our community is having some sort of an issue uh, with either access to therapy, uh, you know, the uh, reimbursement issues, uh, access to providers. And so IDF is also there to uh, advocate for uh, patients in part through, you know, all of the normal channels of lobbying and that sort of grassroots uh, advocacy, but also by maintaining relationships with uh, the FDA, uh, with all of the manufacturers, with a lot of the uh, you know the key 
uh, you know, groups in the medical community, uh, including INS, uh, where we're sharing information that maybe everyone knows one side of, but no one is really looking at the uh, maybe the whole picture. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the we see the the PI community as you know our responsibility. Uh, you know that they come to us for their problems, and so we make sure that uh, everyone hears what we're hearing. That when there's a problem, uh, we are hopping on the phone. We are uh, having meetings. We're convening uh, opinion leaders to make sure that uh, we can create solutions. Uh, And sometimes these are are ones that really do require um, a lot of different stakeholders and no one entity like IDF, like the FDA, like INS, uh, is really capable of of changing on their own. But in coalition with one another, we can at least uh, uh, start to turn the ship a bit on. So that's a bit about what it is that we do. Very good. So what I'd like to do is I would like to share your website with our listeners when I put the show notes out for this podcast. Um, And I'm going to encourage our listeners, go poke around on the Immune Deficiency Foundation website. There are many things that you can learn. I certainly have um, as well. There's places where you can click in there and you can find out what you can do, how you can be involved. And um, just... I think it really behooves us to just make ourselves more aware of, of PI and the work that goes into supporting this community. John, thank you so much for being my guest today. You have just given us such an excellent uh, review, overview of your work and what it's like to be a patient uh, with primary immune deficiency. Um, we also had, you know, got to touch base a little bit and how clinicians can be more involved and how important it is that we have collaborative relationships with our patients. And um, this has just been an excellent discussion. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. I I, uh, hope that uh, some of these things will be, be helpful. And if any of your listeners are ever interested, Yes, please do check out the website, www.primaryimmune.org, and feel free to just contact us here at the Immune Deficiency Foundation. Uh, We're happy to connect with you, to uh, provide our resources to you to the degree that we can, um, and to collaborate where you see that there are opportunities and needs that will affect the the patients that both sides, your side and ours, uh, ultimately serve. So um, we're all on the same team, so let's Uh, continue to find uh, new and better ways to work together. Thank you. And this concludes this edition of Talking in Vain. Thank you for listening.